What's up? How are you guys? Nice to see you, church. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. If you have a Bible, uh, turn there with me. Love to have you join us. I'm excited about um, sort of continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. If you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Hebrews from the very beginning. Uh, if you're just jumping in, if you're a guest with us, uh, you can find all those messages if you'd like to go back. Those are all online. But for those of us who've been here over the course of the last year, we've been uh, verse by verse kind of working our way through Hebrews in this, this idea of modern faith, our modern faith in 2018, anchored in ancient truth. And the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just to kind of recap, or again, for some of you might be new to this, the writer has done a great job of initially establishing the supremacy of Christ, the importance and the value of Christ, his superiority in every category. And then he goes on to say that we have to be very careful. Because Christ is so vital and so important, we have to be very careful that we don't lose sight of him, right? Because there's a history where the people of God, even though they had seen God move, even though they'd been in proximity to the work of God, God. When we look at the children of Israel who left Egypt, they saw God work in some incredible ways, and yet they didn't couple their knowledge of God or their view of God with action. And they were faithless, and as a result, they did not have the privilege of entering into the promised land. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying it's vital that we understand how the work of Christ is superior, how vital his work is on our behalf, that we would remain anchored in him, that we would remain anchored in his work so that we don't fall away. And then as we get to into chapter 10, he, uh, there's, a, there's a great verse at the end of chapter 10 where he says to us, some of you will remember, he says, we, meaning all of us that he's writing to, and then by inclusion, the, the church in history, we are not of those who shrink back and perish But we are of those of faith who preserve our souls. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. And then talking about this company that we're in, we're in the company of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In chapter 11, then he gives us this laundry list of faithful heroes of faith. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, those who have endured, those who've run the race that God set in front of them, those who have done so and lived faithful lives and sometimes died without ever even receiving that which was promised. So he's given us this sort of portrait gallery of heroic members of the faith community and then he comes into 12 and he's moving from, you know, sort of this indicative, like uh, he's declaring information. He moves from the indicative to the imperative. So he says, I've given you all this information and now I want to inspire you to do something with that information. He wants to move us from a place of simply understanding what the people that have come before us did in faith to a place where we understand what bearing that has on our own life. He wants us to respond. Now, uh, before we dig into 12, I'll say this. One of the rhythms that we're hoping as a church to kind of enter into in the, in the next few years is that when we finish a big, uh, a big series like this one we've been in in Hebrews, that we would actually set aside time in, in our morning worship services to respond to the way that God has moved in and through us. So we're going to finish this Hebrews series in the, next, um, in the next two months. And on May 27th, which is the last Sunday of the month, May 27th is a Sunday that's set aside simply for us as a community to respond to what God has done in and through us during this Hebrew series. So I want to put that seed in your head right now that I want you to begin thinking if there aren't ways that maybe God would move in you to respond in a a public way, to encourage the rest of the body. Maybe you're an artist or a craftsman. Maybe there's uh, some sort of an art piece you could create. Or maybe you're the kind of person that would want to share a story or read a passage that's meaningful. We're going to do baptisms on the 27th. But that whole Sunday has been set aside for us to 
actively respond. So I want you to, I'm giving you plenty of warning. Think about how you want to participate in that service on the 27th and then send me an email or come by the office. We'll, we'll kind of get it all lined up. But I'm really praying that God will raise up people from, from our body to actively participate and talk about the ways in which God has moved in us during Hebrews. All of that to say, in Hebrews 12, moving on from this portrait gallery of faith, he then says this at the beginning. Therefore, that's verse one of chapter 12. Therefore, so what's he saying? Therefore, in light of all the things that have come before this, Supremacy of Christ, the need to not fall away, right? The fact that we're in the company of those who have faith and preserve their souls, and he's given us a list of their incredible faithfulness. He says, therefore, in light of that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He uses the, the picture, a type, the, the analogy of a race. And he says, God has set this race before us. And in light of the great testimony of those who've come before, let us run the race in a similar fashion. So it says there, um, therefore we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I remember being a kid and hearing this story or hearing this verse read. And it was always in my head like the picture of like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Moses. And they're like floating in the clouds and they're watching me. And they're like, Darren, you better be a good Christian or whatever, like, that's not what it's talking about, right? It's not talking about witnesses in the fact that they're watching us or, like, rooting for us. When it talks about us being surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, it's talking about their testimony. It's talking about the fact that there is this historical record of people who, by their very lives, would testify to us, it is worth it to be obedient to God. It is worth it to live a life of sacrifice, Fullerton Free Church in 2018, it is worth it to follow the course that God has laid out for you. We have this great cloud of witnesses that is testifying to us of the value of living in alignment with the purpose for which we were created. He says, in light of that testimony, in light of all of these witnesses who are testifying to us, I, I think, you know, we live in a day and age now where like, if you're like me, I don't go to a restaurant until I read the Yelp, the Yelp reviews, right? I want to know what other people, what kind of experience they've had before. I don't stay in a hotel until I've read the online reviews on Expedia or Kayak or whatever. I don't buy a mattress until I've read the online reviews about other people's experience. I don't buy a pillow. I, don't, I really don't purchase anything anymore without first hearing the wisdom of the crowd, right? What does everybody else have to say about that place or about that item? What the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us is that there's wisdom of the crowd that comes before you and they're declaring to you there is value in faithfulness and endurance. So he says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, in light of this incredible testimony, let us do what? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now he's already painted the picture of a race. Now he's sort of painting the picture for us of what a runner has to do before he can run the race. So in the, in the, the context in which this is written, they would do these races and the runners would all come into the arena or the amphitheater in these really elaborate, colorful robes, right? These, these beautiful robes. They would come into the arena and they'd come in in these robes, but then they wouldn't run the race in the robes. That would be incredibly difficult to do. They'd get tripped up. They were long and heavy. So before the runners would run the race, they'd come in and all this stuff, but literally before they'd run the race, they would strip that off. And the runners, during the time in which the book of Hebrews was written, would run naked. That's the title of my message today, run naked, right? He's saying you got to strip off all that stuff that would get in the way. We have a graphic for the run naked sermon thing. No, we're going to put that up? No? It's fine. I don't know. 
No? All right, it's fine. We won't show it, but we got a good one. Anyway, the idea is that we're called to strip. I mean, I don't want to be too crass with you, but in running the race that God has put before us, the first call in light of these great witnesses is to strip because there are things that have got us tangled up, sin that has us tangled up, and other weights that have us bogged down and encumbered, hindered from the race that God has called us to. You know, I, uh, I've been to Israel twice, and the first time I went was a, uh, it was a 100-mile hiking tour, right? So we were there for 10 days. We did 10 miles a day, and I was with college students. And uh, college students have the energy to do 10 miles a day. I didn't necessarily have the energy, and so it was kind of, it was a little bit hard to be with young people, and they were doing the 10 miles a day, and they had like all kinds of extra energy, and they were like ready to do extra things, and I mostly just wanted to lay down every day at the end of the day. But uh, my friend Brent, who's a pastor in Long Beach, he went on the very same uh, trek in Israel, 100 miles. He went on the same tour a year after me. And he, he got back and he told me the story. He goes, man, the, the kid that was sitting on the bus right in front of us was just like one of these like chatty Cathy, like he just talked nonstop. And we'd get back to the bus and we'd be winded and tired. And this guy's just talking 100 miles an hour and he won't give us a break. And he's like, he's one of those guys who's like running on the trail while we can just barely walk on the trail. And he goes, so my wife and I came up with this plan and he's like, while we were out on the path, you know, hiking to all these monumental places in Israel, he says, whenever we would stop and look at a monument or look at a place of import, or we'd have a little Bible study or whatever, he goes, whenever we would stop, he goes, that kid, I'd make sure I was right behind him, and I would really, like, slowly, I'd unzip his backpack, and then my wife and I would grab rocks from the side of the trail, and we would slip him into his backpack to weigh him down and then zip it back up without him knowing. And he's like, it was awesome because the more and more weight we added, the more and more tired this kid got. We get back to the bus and he had nothing to say. You know, he was like worn out. He goes, it was perfect, you know? And I started thinking about that. Like, it's kind of mean, right? To like put rocks in a kid's backpack. But the idea there is that for many of us, even if you're desirous of running the race that God has set before you, this life that we've been called to, for many of us, there are these rocks in our backpack. There are these weights that have hindered us, that are weighing us down. And some of them aren't even rocks that we put there. Some of them are weights that the culture has placed into our backpack. Some of them are, are consequences of other people's actions. But we can get weighed down. You know, when, when the text says, hey, in light of all these witnesses, let's, uh, let's cast aside the sin that entangles us, I think we get that, right? I think we all get the idea that there is this sin that constricts or that entangles us, that wraps us up and, and threatens to trip us up. And all of us have sin in our life. Sin, by the way, we talked about this last week, sin is just any of those ways in which we fail to glorify God in our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts and our words. And here's what's interesting about the sin that entangles. Sin that entangles is different for all of us. We all have sin that entangles us. But the sin that entangles me might not be the same as the sin that entangles you. In fact, there are times where you'll hear about other people's struggles or you'll hear about the other things that people are entangled in and you'll go, I don't get why that's such a big deal for them. I don't get why they're struggling with that. I don't get why they're having a hard time. It's because each of us have a different background. We have a different upbringing. We have different propensity to sin. And we're not all inclined to sin in the same ways. And so it behooves us to pay attention not to the sin that's entangling our neighbors, but to pay attention to the sin that entangles me. There are particular things that are hang-ups for me, and I have to not only identify them, but the text says that in light of the great witness of those who've come before, I have to be actively casting that entanglement away. 
I have to be pushing it away. I think of Joseph, right? Joseph in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39. And Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and she goes, hey, why don't you sleep with me? And it says that Joseph refused to answer her or to even be in the same room with her. And then she, she grabbed him, right? And he leaves his jacket and he runs out. He doesn't want to get entangled in that sin. I think it's easy for us to sort of think, even as I'm talking right now, you, you don't need me to tell you the sin that entangles you. You know that, right? You've lived long enough as an adult to sort of know the things that you stumble into, to know the sin that you've been entangled in and t- for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. You know where your wrestling matches are gonna be, but what the text is saying, what the text is encouraging us in is that it is possible to cast those things aside. You see, I think many of us, we just have sort of come to live with our entanglements. We've come to just sort of be resigned to our entanglements and our impediments, and we go, well, I'm just always gonna have to deal with this. I'm just always gonna have my feet shackled. I'm just always gonna have my legs tangled up. But the scripture here says that in, in light of the power of Christ, and we'll get that, to that in a second, it is possible to lay those things aside. Not because of your effort, not by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not by you trying harder, but by the power of Christ, it is possible to be set free from the chains that bind you. But you have to know what they are, and you can't be satisfied with them. It's worth it this morning to think about your life and to think about the sin you may be entangled in. To allow the Spirit of God to convict you to think about the ways in which even this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow, you need to actively be pursuing disentanglement from the sin that's got you wrapped up. But it doesn't just talk about sin that entangles. Notice in the text, it also talks about weights. It says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight, comma, and the sin that so easily entangles. They're two separate things. And weight, we gotta kind of stop and think about that for a second. Weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, is different than sin. That's why they're both listed there. You see, the reality is that some of the rocks that are in our backpack are not wickedness, like naturally. They're, They're otherwise innocent things, or maybe even otherwise good things, that have become an impediment over time. You know that it's possible to become engaged in things where we start to priority stuff that would prioritize stuff that would otherwise be good, but it becomes a deterrent to our pursuit of Christ. It becomes a deterrent to our holiness. It's not a bad thing to want to be married. It's not a bad thing to want to raise a family. It's not a bad thing to want to raise up your children well. But if your pursuit of marriage or your pursuit of family or your pursuit of raising kids becomes more important to you or obscures your view of Christ or becomes a a rock in the backpack that slows you down to the things that God is calling you to, then it's become a problem. And in order to cast off that weight, you don't, you don't remove yourself from your family, but you have to reprioritize it in such a way that it takes its proper position. It's not wrong to want to save money. It's not wrong to want to have a retirement plan. It's not want to succeed vocationally. None of those things are wrong until they become a weight that has impeded you from walking on the path that God has called you to. And it's entirely possible here this morning that some of you are involved in things that nobody would look at and say those are wrong, but in your life they are wrong. Because they become, they become a weight. They become a weight in your backpack, and in some cases, weights in your backpack that somebody else didn't put there, but that you put there. And I think sometimes we sort of have all these things we want to have. You know, I want to have my career, and I want to have my love life, and I want to have my entertainment, and I want to have my experiences, I want to have all these things, and I also want Jesus on top, and I want to be able to run the race of life. And have you ever tried to run with your arms full of stuff? Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be part of your collection. 
He's not interested in being part of the stuff in your arms. He wants to be the king of your life. And so that, what that requires is to lay down those other weights, to lay down those things that have become an impediment. It says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight. And for some of us, the weight might be stuff that other people have put into our backpack. It might be definitions ways other people have defined you. It might be shame and guilt, regret. It might be doubt. It might be fear. There are all kinds of things that can be a weight, and the text is telling us Jesus wants you to have victory over those things. That he doesn't want you to be burdened down by doubt and fear and guilt and shame. And if there are other people who are speaking that stuff into you, if the culture is speaking that into you, if the culture is defining you in a way that is directly in opposition to the sonship and the daughtership in which Christ defines you, then those things have to be cast aside. You gotta get those rocks out of your backpack because they're precluding you from running the race well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he talking? He's talking about discipline. He's saying, I'm setting a, a routine for myself to clear out the impediments to clear out the hindrances, the entanglements. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I wonder if there are weights in your life today, weights in the backpack on your back that you've put there things that you want to participate in, things you want to do, goals you have, but they've become a hindrance. The Bible says remove them. Remember when we were studying Hebrews earlier and it said Moses did not consider uh, the, the riches of Egypt or the riches of the Pharaoh to be more valuable than to be associated with Christ. What's most valuable to you? I'm not saying club sports are wrong. I'm not saying having a speedboat is wrong. But I am saying that in certain contexts, if it becomes more important, then it's just a weight. Not only does he say we should remove these weights, not only does he say we have to strip, but he also says we have to stride. Look at what else it says in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The call is for us to set a stride. There's a, there's a race to be run. And I, I think sometimes we sort of miss this picture, but the, the writer to Hebrews has been building up to this the whole time. Again and again, he's been talking to us about how important endurance is, how important perseverance is, how important faithfulness is over the long haul. Remember uh, Hebrews 3.14 says we know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. Now he says we lay aside these weights and the sin that entangles so that we can run the race that's been set before us. But listen, it's not a sprint. Notice it's not a sprint. I think sometimes we think of our faith in terms of like these big mountaintop experiences, right? I went to camp and I had a great mountaintop experience and then I went to a Billy Graham crusade and I had a great mountaintop experience and then I saw this conference speaker, I read this book and we just think about our Christian life as being a movement from these mountaintop experiences. It's not these little sprints. It's a race of endurance. It's a race of endurance. And here's the other thing, it's not a competition, right? I'm not competing against all of you. 
I'm running the race that God has set out for me. It says we run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, the reality is that it's, it's not all the same race. We all have the same finish line. We all have the same aim. Our aim is the glory of God and relationship with him. Our aim is that we be conformed to the image of Christ over time. We're all headed towards the same finish line, but our race courses are all a little bit different. You know this, right? You know, all of us know people who have finished their race before their time. People that died unexpectedly or people that died sooner than we would have liked. And you look at that and you go, why? It's because the course that God set out for them was shorter than yours. We also all know old timers who are like 110 and they're like, what am I still doing here, you know? I want to go to heaven. I don't want to be here anymore, right? And they might look at God and say, why have I been here for 110 years when I want to be with you? And he would say to them, I've set a longer course for you, but it has the same goal. It has the same finish line, the glory of God, relationship with him, conforming to the image of Christ. We don't all have the same course. We're not competing against each other. We're running the race that God has set for us. But I love the providence of that. That in his divine knowledge and in his wisdom, he sets a course for each of us. I know people who it feels like the race that God has set for them, the course that God has set for them, has been almost entirely uphill. You know people like that where it just feels like, man, that has been an uphill race for them. I also know other people who it seems like they never have any conflict or any difficulty. God has set out a different course for each of us, but we have the same objective, and the only way we reach the objective is through endurance. It's through continuance. It's to continue on the path in front of us. And so what's required is a stride. A stride. Uh, The word stride means this. A step in regular rate of progress toward an aim. Right? A step in regular rate of progress toward an aim. What's that mean? It means that what we're being called to here, the race that we've been called to, is one of progression. you got to move on it. I think sometimes we sort of plateau, don't we? Or we kind of become satisfied with who we are. You sort of settle into a way of life or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you go, eh, this is good enough. I've run far enough and, and, and I'm not going any further. We've all met people who become stagnant, who become spiritually satisfied or spiritually tired. Can I tell you, in this Christian race that we're running, there should always be in our lives a sense of spiritual discontent. We should always be able to look into the mirror and go, well, I want to be following Christ more faithfully tomorrow than I was yesterday. Am I glorifying God more clearly in my life today than I was a year ago? I can ask you that this morning. Do you feel like your life is glorifying God more effectively today than it was a year ago? Because if not, it's possible that you've sat down on the side of the race course and taken a break and you never got up again. I think for many of us, we sort of live this life of playing old highlight reels of the missions trip we took in 2002 or whatever, right? And the call is for us to run this race of endurance, this race of progression. And in order to do that, we have to set a stride. Not only do we have to set a stride, steps in progress toward an aim, but we are always refining that stride, right? If you're a runner, you know you're always refining your stride. There are always ways to trim a little bit of time, to go a little bit faster, to reduce a little bit of drag. That's what runners do. So it says, we have to strip, we have to stride, we need to be making forward progress. 
And then the third thing, and here's what it says in verse two, because you might look at that and go, well, how am I supposed to do these things, right? How am I supposed to remove the sin that entangles me? How am I supposed to get these rocks out of my backpack? How, how am I supposed to stride and continue to run? I'm tired, I'm faint-hearted, I'm weary. He, he gives us the answer to how you do it as well. Not only does he say strip and stride, but he says stare. Stare, look at what he says in verse two. He says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. How do we do it? We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run the race? How do we remove all of these hindrances? We do it by focusing our eyes in the right place. Again, this is what the writer of the Hebrews has been saying the whole time. He said it again and again and again to us. Now he summarized this really clearly, that we are supposed to set our sights on Christ. And that's hard. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not sort of the intuitive way to run. When you're running, literally, you sort of look at the path in front of you, right? If you take your gaze off the path in front of you, you could trip or you know, fall over a log or go off into a canyon or whatever. It doesn't feel intuitive to take your eyes off the path, but what the writer is saying is that in our case, spiritually, to succeed, we have to get our eyes off the path in front of us. Where are we gonna go? What's around the next corner? We also have to take our eyes off the path behind us, and that's a thing that happens to us a lot. I would guess that there may be many of you in the room who are trying to run the race, always looking over your shoulder, always sort of recalculating what you could have done different, bogged down by the mistakes you've made or the sins of your past or the regrets or the guilt or the shame, the things in the past. He says we're not supposed to be looking behind us. We're not supposed to be looking ahead. We're not supposed to be looking at the prize even, right? It's not even about the reward, except in such a sense as the reward is Christ himself. We're certainly not supposed to be looking at the other competitors. And that's always a temptation, right? Isn't that the problem the Pharisees fell into? In the scripture, the Pharisees were trying to live good lives. They were trying to do all this religious stuff. But why? So that they could lord it over others. They're running the race in some ways, but they're looking left and right. And all they're wanting to do is to be able to say, I know more about the Bible than you. I'm living more righteous than you. And to puff themselves up by their degradation of others. The writer of the Hebrews says, get your eyes off the other runners. It's your race. You have a different course. It's not a competition. Don't set your eyes on the other runners. Don't set your eyes on the path behind. Don't set your eyes on the course ahead. Don't set your eyes on the tape that you're gonna you know, run through. And certainly don't set your eyes on yourself. What does he say? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Well, how does that help us in a race? Well, he tells us. He says, look, when we look at Jesus, here's what we see. The author and the finisher of our faith, or the originator and the perfecter. The, the first word, no matter how it's translated in your individual Bibles, that first word that gets translated author um, or originator, the origin of our faith just means that he's the creator, right? We see in Ephesians 2 uh, that, that by grace we're saved through faith, and that's the gift of God. None of us have faith on our own. We don't create faith. We're not faith factories. Our faith is a gift of God. So he's the originator of faith, right? He's the author of it. It's also true that he's the originator of faith in the sense that Colossians 1 says Jesus has created all things, that all things exist by him and through him and for him. So he's the originator, right? The author of faith and the perfecter. I've heard that text taught a lot of times where people are like, well, you know, ultimately he's the one that's gonna perfect you. And, and that is true in one sense, that ultimately we're being sanctified, we will be perfected. But when it's talking here about Jesus, we set our eyes on him, we stare at him, the author and finisher, or the author and perfecter, that word that's translated perfecter is more the idea of a champion, 
or a role model. The perfect picture of a life of faith. So he's saying here, don't look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't look at Moses. Don't look at any of those others. Look at Jesus, because all of those examples, as great a testimony as they have, aren't the champion of faith, the best that's ever been done. Jesus is the hero. There is no better picture for us of what faith in action looks like than to gaze at Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Then it says this about him. When we look at him, what do we see? He's the author, originator. He's the perfecter or the perfect picture of faith. But not only that, for the joy set before him, it says, he endured the cross, scorned the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Think about those three things, right? He endured the cross, which he didn't deserve. A humiliating, miserable, painful death that he endured it says for joy. Have you ever thought about the cross as being a source of joy for Jesus? How is that miserable, horrendous death a source of joy? Well, it's a source of joy because in the cross, he is able to glorify the Father and he's able to rescue the sheep that were lost. He's able to redeem us from sin and death. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 says that in his work, he was able to bring many sons and daughters to glory, right? There's joy for Christ in the work of salvation. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned the shame. He scorned the shame. What does that mean? Well, it basically means that he tolerated shame. Here's kind of an interesting historical note. This is the only place. At the cross is the only place in the entirety of the history of the universe that God tolerates shame that he puts up with shame. In every other case, he does not. He's always in pursuit of his own glory. He tolerates shame at the cross. Why? For the joy of rescuing his people. For the joy of reaching out in love to glorify his father. He scorns the shame. He dismisses the shame. And that's the only place that God ever does that. And he is seated victorious at the right hand of the throne of the Father. His work is completed. It's finished. Jesus isn't working in an ongoing way to try and secure the victory. The victory is done. So what's the writer saying? Get rid of all these impediments, the things that have entangled you, the rocks in your backpack. Get rid of them. Because of all the testimony of these people that have gone before, get rid of the things that are in the way. Strip. And set a stride. That's an ongoing progression of steps towards an aim. And stare at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Why? Because he's the originator of faith. He's the perfecter of faith. And for joy, he endured the cross and scorned the shame and is seated victorious at the right hand of the Father. He, in any other context, we would look at this and say, idolize Jesus, right? Idolize him. That's what we'd say. I mean, all, if you're an athlete or you're an artist, if you're a musician or a baker or whatever, you've got heroes, don't you? You've got people you look at and you say, I want to play basketball like that or I want to play the guitar like that. We all have these people that we look up to. In any other context, we would say that what the writer is saying to us is idolize Jesus, stare at Jesus. But here's the catch. He's not saying idolize Jesus, and here's why. An idol, by the very nature of idolatry, is a substitute for God, right? It's something that we substitute for God. So in Jesus' case, it is not possible for us to idolize him. It's not possible to idolize Jesus because he is in very nature God. So what's he talking about when he says stare? Look unto Jesus. He's not talking about making him an idol because he can't be. He's talking about worship. Gaze at Jesus. Don't look away. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at the road behind you. Don't look at the road ahead. Don't look at the other runners. Gaze at Jesus. 
Because he is the power through which all the rest of these things occur. He is the solution for us. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I get that you, in your power, and I, in my power, cannot get the rocks out of my backpack. I get that it's very difficult to disentangle myself from the sin that so easily besets me. But Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is seated victorious at the right hand of the Father, he can untangle your legs. He can break those chains. And he can certainly liberate that backpack of yours. So he says, stare at Christ. And what he means is worship him. Strip, stride, stare. And the last thing we see in verses three and four study. Look at what it says in verses 3. This is Hebrews 12, 3. It says in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's the last thing here in this opening section of, of chapter 12? He's saying, don't just stare at him in worship, but study him. Look at how he did what he did. Consider him. There's a mental process to that, to take the time to really sort of stroke your beard and think about Jesus who, who did these things. Look at what it says. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Your life is hard. You got coworkers or family members that are ridiculing you for taking the rocks out of your backpack. You got people in your life that are constantly wrapping up your legs with new entanglements of sin. It says one of, the, one of the ways in which we disentangle ourselves is to consider or to study Christ because he's the perfect example to us of how our lives are intended to be lived. There isn't a circumstance or a situation you're in, no matter what it's like, no matter how unique to 2018, there is no circumstance or situation that you and I are in today that his life does not speak to. It speaks to every circumstance. It speaks to every situation. He is a model for us of how to run the race of how to endure. Everything he did, he did for the sake of his father and for the good of other people. And so he becomes to us an example that we could follow in his steps. First Peter, famous verse in First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verse 19 and following says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when now, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is the perfect model and all we have to do to understand how to live the lives that God's placed in front of us, how to run the course that God has set in front of us is to study his methods, to study his example. That's why we make these worship services all about Jesus. It's why we have adult fellowships and small groups and men's groups and women's groups and we're doing all these different things. Why? To study Jesus that we would then live like him. You know, all of this, these opening things, the, the stripping and the striding, the staring at Christ in worship, the study of his methods, 
all of those things are pretty basic. I get that, right? Like this isn't probably a message you haven't heard before unless you're brand new to the church. These are pretty basic things. But isn't it weird how often we fail to live the basics? Isn't it weird how often we lose sight of that? We get bogged down in all these theological things and all these arguments and all this mumbo jumbo. And the reality is if I want to know how to how to live the life that God has created for me. If I want to know how to be a good husband and how to be a good father and how to be a good friend, I'm meant to study Christ. I'm meant to study Christ. It seems basic and it seems simple, but so few of us do that. You hear a lot of people talk about discipleship, you know, and you can ask people about discipleship. Uh, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. And people will go, well, what's discipleship then? And right, you talk to, talk to 40 people, you have 40 different definitions. All kinds of different answers of what discipleship is. Can I tell you, this, this text has made it pretty clear for us. Discipleship, the process of becoming like Christ, is unimpeded progress toward a clearer view of Jesus and an increasingly refined replication of his methods. Discipleship is unimpeded progress toward a clearer view of Christ and an increasingly refined replication of his methods. And while that seems like a no-brainer to many of you, I wonder if there aren't rocks in your backpack that you've just become accustomed to. I wonder if there aren't entanglements around your legs that you've just sort of learned how to cope with. I wonder if maybe you've sat down on the side of the course that you've been called to run and you've made a little snack for yourself and you never got up and got back on the road. I wonder if you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and you focused it on religiosity or on yourself or on other people or whatever. I wonder how much time you spend studying his methods in order to empower yourself, the spirit of God moving in you in the life in which you live. I think many of us need to go back to these basics and relearn discipleship because we've missed some of this key stuff. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would move in us, even in these simple things, that you would move in us with a spirit of conviction, a spirit of excitement and encouragement to be disentangled, to be unencumbered, to be freed from these things that have slowed us down on the course that you've given us. Help us to be grateful and in awe of you for the course that, that you've laid in front of us, that, that we even have this life to run. And God, give us the strength and the wisdom to never take our gaze off of you, but to look unto you, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who gives us a picture of endurance and to study your methods so that we can enact those in our lives as well. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.